Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Body I.O. This is your host, Kiefer. And sticking with the blunt truth that I've tried to present throughout this COVID crisis, this international COVID crisis, uh, I wanted to rehash some of the things I said earlier, which was expecting what we're seeing now. If you remember in some of my earliest podcasts, all I did was I looked at historical data for other pandemic outbreaks, uh, including the Spanish flu uh, in the 1920s, and also looking at the SARS compared to flu spread and all those things and its potential death rate. And way back in April or May... I made the prediction that we would have, especially with countries doing the lockdowns, that we would probably have at least half a million deaths in the United States. And they've been throwing that number around lately, I've noticed on the news in the United States. It's kind of this scary figure. Um, But if you remember, I said that was very likely, and especially that the lockdowns would cause a wave effect, whereas if there was immunity to be had from COVID and the chance that it wears off, which we are seeing that it does, that every time you locked down, you just extended the number of, you extended when the next batch of people will get infected and you opened up the previous population to infection because they were immune but you locked everybody down and you release them right at when their immunity is gone so even though they won't get very sick they become spreaders anyway and you would see a massive increase in infections that would be exacerbated by the cold weather and we're seeing all of that you know it was it was still a really horrible implementation plan to just lock down blindly like they did Um, And I think it's unfortunate because, you know, I I didn't have information. I didn't have access to information that was top secret or anything like this. All of this information was available and I made very crude models that just fit past data and was able to predict this on my home computer. And there's universities and government agencies that have way more computer capacity than I do. They just started from a different set of assumptions, and one of those assumptions was that it was already too late and they couldn't save people in any other way than to prevent them from being exposed to the virus. And once it's already loose in a society, especially a heavily connected society with dense pockets of population, that's just not going to work. And we're in the middle of the proof of that. So... My message has been very consistent throughout, and I've just tried to give the truth of the matter and the best possible models that I could generate. Now, of course, you could argue that other people's models were better, but they obviously weren't because they're way off and they've had to recorrect them every month or so. So this was just a matter of tackling the problem from the full perspective of, yes, it's loose, Yes, we can't get it under control. Locking people down in an attempt to control the virus works against the strength 
of individuals. So in other words, it amplifies what's weak about civilization. And that's that people aren't made to be isolated. So the minute that relaxes, they're going to go out and socialize again. And another big problem with that is, so you play to the weakness of human behavior and you play to the strength of a virus. Because remember, the massive outbreak in Italy that ripped through the country was started by one individual who traveled to northern Italy who had just come home from China. And that's the strength of a virus. If even one person is left infected, you could have an explosion. And that's why I warned about this waveform locking down, you know, trying to limit contact and then opening things up and then you lock down again. And it, it, it turns into a disaster. Uh, and I, I will say I think it is incredibly unfortunate that my predictions were correct because I would be much, much happier to be on this podcast right now saying, wow, I was totally wrong. Shutting down was the right thing to do. Look at all the, you know, look at how well under control this is. But un- unfortunately, it's not. So now that we've gotten past that and you know we are in what i considered the mid-range of the worst possible scenario there's now a lot of excitement for the covid vaccine and i wanted to go into those because i've also noticed in the media talking about these vaccines a they don't understand what the vaccines are And they also don't understand the statistics that are being used to claim 90% effectiveness or 95% effectiveness. And there are still some significant concerns. And I know you've all heard me say my fears that approval processes might happen too fast and they might miss what happened with all the SARS vaccine, all the candidate SARS vaccines and all the candidate MERS vaccines where they ended up making people more susceptible to death if they took the vaccine. Now, I'm not saying that's the case with these vaccines at all. And we really shouldn't be surprised that these vaccines were made this fast. I've heard, again, on several news reports and from government officials in the United States and around the world, it's like, it's amazing what scientists can do and they really work hard. Well, the development of the vaccine actually wasn't extraordinarily fast. This is actually pretty normal. They take so long because they require so much testing in populations because we want to make sure that they're not going to make things worse. So we're actually not that far ahead. I'm sure you've heard that Moderna has a vaccine available as well as Pfizer and Pfizer's gotten a lot of a lot of press lately for theirs, as well as Novavax is another company that has a, a viable vaccine. Now, all of these trials that they've done, of course, they've all done trials with tens of thousands of people. On average, each trial that they did brought in around thirty thousand participants. You know, for each of the vaccines. So that's 30,000 each that they used. The problem is that their data that they used for 90 to 95% effectiveness was only in the high side. So they only assessed between 100 and 200 people for that statistic. 
And let me tell you why that is. So they went and they inoculated these people and they let them go out. And what they had to do was test that entire batch of people to see who became infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Now, this may sound oxymoronic. It's like, well, it's a vaccine, right? They, They shouldn't get the virus. And this is, again, where we see a big problem in the communication with the media and government officials and not giving the full story. So these vaccines are actually a vaccine against COVID-19. And that's a very misleading statement because COVID-19 is the syndrome is the name we've given the syndrome that is the cluster of symptoms caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So let me slow that down a little bit and say it again. The vaccine is against COVID-19. COVID-19 is only the name we've given to the symptoms. It is not a vaccine against the virus. This is an incredibly important distinction for a couple of reasons. One, because they were testing these vaccines during a lull, even though they they vaccinated between 30 and 40,000 people for these tests, they only had positive infections of 100 people, 200 at most for each of these trials. So they could only test the effectiveness of the vaccine in preventing symptoms in a little under 200 people each. That's not a very good statistical sample when you're talking about a new vaccine. And on top of that, again, this was only to curb the actual symptoms of the virus. So all these people did get infected. And one big problem that they discovered with this infection is that they can't, that the virus itself could still be replicating and these individuals are walking around with no symptoms and shedding virus like crazy, live virus. So they could still be infecting other people. And they were unfortunately not able to track that down. So, and another big problem with all of this is none of the companies have published their research. So we don't even know what their results really look like. You know, we can assume that there's quite a bit of honesty there, but in that honesty, there's a lot of cloudiness with what's being reported and it needs to be very clear. So again, we don't know that this is effective in large populations because Maybe 40,000 people got it, but they were only able to see its effectiveness in 200 or less of, of each of those groups. So that's not great statistical power at all. And so that's where you get these 90, 95% success rates from. Those probably are not, those may not hold. There's a good chance they won't hold when you introduce it into population at large during a massive outbreak. And second, it is a vaccine against the symptoms called COVID-19. It is not a vaccine against the virus yet. As far as we know, and they've seen this in some of the people who tested positive, 
they still produced viruses, live virus, and they were potentially shedding the virus while they had it. And so that means they were still infecting other people. But they didn't get the symptoms, so they wouldn't have even known they were sick. So this presents quite the quagmire of how we roll this out. Uh, it really does make sense that this vi- that these vaccines should only be rolled out to individuals who are either constantly being exposed to COVID uh, to the virus or to individuals who are not exposed to the population at large. So that leaves first responders, frontliners, workers in hospitals, people who man the ambulances to go pick up cases. Those people absolutely should be the top priority. Government officials should not. And I know that they're going to be the first ones to get it, which is asinine, but they should not be the first population to get it. And the next, besides frontline workers, should be people who are interned in some way. And I don't mean prisons. I mean like nursing homes or retirement homes. They have a super high risk. And they're also, they also do not go out in public at large often. Or, or normally that's the case. So they would be great candidates for these vaccines in this time. We, we don't know. These vaccines... There's nothing record-breaking about how fast they developed candidate vaccines. What would be record-breaking is if they had gotten the approval and tested it on enough people that's usually done over a two-year period to know that it's actually safe and works. And there's no way to replace that two-year period. There's just no way to do it. Uh, So these are what we're looking at. And this is kind of a short podcast because I wanted to bring into relief the facts behind all these statements we're hearing that sound so promising and sound like the end is near you know you can imagine if you just release this vaccine you still have to worry about lockdown measures you still have to worry about social distancing you still have to worry about wearing masks because people who got the vaccine are going to be intermingling with people who didn't and the, the truth of the matter is there's just not enough vaccine to go around yet. And that, that could end up being a good thing. We, I, like I said, we don't know what this going, is going to do in the larger population. Now, you probably heard, and I'm, I'm going to go into a little bit of the technical aspects of the viruses so you can know which one you're more likely to receive. Uh, depending on where you are. So the Pfizer vaccine, although they have, they've claimed exceptional success rates with vaccinating people against COVID-19 symptoms. uh, I mean, this thing requires two shots staggered two weeks apart and their data does show as, as I've been able to dig into it as much as possible in that two week period between shots, you can still contract the virus and get sick. Uh, so all of their statistics for success rates actually throw out everybody who became infected between shots and everybody who became infected after the second shot before two-week period was over. So you have to get the first shot. Two weeks later, you get the second shot. 
And then two weeks after that is where you get the high success rate of beating COVID-19 symptoms. So your risk of dying from it at that point, if you catch it, are extremely low. So that, that takes a month before the Pfizer vaccine is effective. And there's another bigger problem, and that's that it needs to be stored at minus 70 degrees Celsius. And, you know, instead of converting it to Fahrenheit so everybody everywhere can have a sense, that's colder than dry ice. So it needs to be stored at temperatures colder than dry ice. And there's been this big deal, like, you know, oh, this is a huge deal. This is really hard to do. Well, to be honest, it's not. Liquid nitrogen is super easy to produce. Uh, the hard part would be maintaining the canisters so that I don't know if the vaccine can get too cold because l- liquid nitrogen, like massively cold, almost uh, minus 200 degrees C. But producing liquid nitrogen, transporting it, and transporting things contained in liquid nitrogen, actually not a big deal. Uh, we have all the facilities to do that. Of course, it would need to be geared up, but it is totally possible. Uh, So that's not as big of a deal, but it makes it more unlikely because what you also have is Moderna's vaccine, which is, so Pfizer and Moderna both made mRNA vaccines. And so these basically, and I'm trying to remember which one, I believe they have some sort of delivery system that delivers basically this spike protein from the virus into the body so that there can be an immune response. And I don't think either of those two use an actual virus vector for that. Um, So they both require refrigeration. I think they both require multiple shots. But then the Novavax vaccine is a DNA. So it actually takes DNA from the coronavirus and they put it into a different virus, one that has absolutely no, causes no symptomology whatsoever in human beings, and they use that as the vector. So it can get in, the body can see the DNA without developing any symptoms, and it can build defenses against it. We don't know which one is more effective, but the Novavax vaccine doesn't have to be stored at cold temperatures at all. So That will be most likely the one, if they can get production rates up, that most people will see over the next year, is my guess, just because it's easy to distribute. Uh, Again, I don't know how fast it can be produced. Now, there's been some controversy, especially lately, in the United States as well, over, you know, Pfizer, uh, the United States didn't secure enough doses of Pfizer's potential vaccine and now they're saying you know they won't be able to produce or deliver much until next summer and i have said before that the operation warp speed was america funding many of these companies to produce the vaccine uh, which unfortunately that means u.s taxpayers paid for it they'll end up paying for it again but the upside of that is the government is the u.s government at least this is the upside for Americans, is trying to secure all of their production only for Americans, which, you know, is shows a, a real lack of international cooperation uh, because they could produce more than enough vaccines 
if they, especially this vaccine, these vaccines, what we know about them, they could produce enough to inoculate the populations that would be most at risk around quite a bit of the world. And in doing so, life could go back to normal just because younger people have a very low risk. They still, the stats just keep getting better for young people. They have a very low risk of developing severe symptoms that are going to put them in the hospital or kill them. So if it were distributed that way, the whole world could go back to normal quite a bit faster. Um, but that doesn't look like that's what's going to happen. But, but Pfizer is unique because they did not participate in Operation Warp Speed. And I think they did that in effect because they didn't want to be conscripted in their delivery and sale of their vaccine to any one government. And that's why Pfizer was able to get approved, and it's already being used in the UK. So we've got kind of a test bed going on in the UK right now that'll tell us what's happening with the Pfizer vaccine. Again, that doesn't tell us much about the other two vaccines and how they're gonna, going to function. So the, the Pfizer rollout in the UK could end up being a disaster. Like, we don't know. Or it could end up being amazing. Well, the problem is you can't just assume that's going to happen with Moderna or Novidex's vaccine. Uh, we don't know. So I know everybody wants to be excited. They've announced these vaccines and the media is portraying it like it's, you know, it's the end of everything. Even though we won't get them for a while, we've got them and they're going to be out and everything's going to be great. We just need to step back and take an honest look at the data and just be honest about where things are right now with the vaccines. You know, there's still a lot of unknowns. We just don't know. And their efficacy, to be honest, we have no idea what that is. And we also have no idea if it's going to stop the spread of the virus. You know, there are an amazing number of unanswered questions, and that's why most vaccines require that two-year testing period before they're released because these questions need to be answered because if you can't answer them you also can't make good policy on how people should act once the vaccines are out and available you know if you're still infecting people left and right then you can't just open everything up well i mean actually you could if you're if you had the wherewithal to protect the at-risk populations but all the states you know they're going to end up in a situation where they just lock down again because they just don't know what else to do i mean they're essentially floundering i think as soon as any country or state decides to do a lockdown they're basically admitting that they have no idea what to do like they're they're totally clueless and they're not going to exercise all the options available to them and that that's basically what a lockdown says at this point. It's like, you know, we don't know what we're doing. We're just going to lock everything down and then we can close our eyes and hope it goes away. And if it doesn't, we can just blame people for not obeying the lockdown. So it's kind of this Hail Mary pass. And at the same time, it allows them to escape culpability for having no real plan. And it, it's really unfortunate. And I kind of understand the situation they're in. 
because they have no good advisement either from their science teams or from government officials or government researchers. And a lot of papers and research I've seen coming out, I mean, they're terrible. Their statistical analyses are terrible. And they seem to all be bent towards the idea of, you know, locking down is the only thing possible. Um, these kind of things that I think are really unfair assessments of their work and their models. Uh, and again, their models obviously are crap because they've, they're, they've been off every time. They've had to completely reassess every single time when they could have done their worst case scenario model. And then we could all look and say, oh my gosh, we did everything as predicted we did everything, the lockdowns and everything, and as the model predicted for worst case scenario, we're in it. So we need to reassess our situation. And that's just not being done. Uh, so it's super unfortunate. And we still have, in many countries, but in the United States particularly, there's still a large percentage of the population that thinks this is a hoax, that it's not real. And it's getting to the point that they won't be able to ignore it much longer. You know, the worst, after the election, they were able to go back and do an analysis and see where the, the largest and fastest outbreaks have been happening. And they correlated that with which counties of each state in the United States voted for Republican ticket. And they found those were the places that COVID's exploding. And I'm not making a judgment over anybody's political affiliations. You have your ideology for whatever reason it is. But that goes to show how dangerous it is to just keep trying to ignore that this exists. It obviously exists. You know, there's two people in my neighborhood that are, have died from COVID just over the last couple of weeks. So this is real. It's not a hoax. I, I hope everybody can see that at this point. And that doesn't mean we know how to fight it. That doesn't mean that every state and federal recommendation is correct on how to battle this. It doesn't even mean that lockdowns are the correct thing to do. But it does mean that it is real and you need to be careful to try to slow these things down and prevent the loss of life. And odds are if you get COVID, that loss of life will be somebody you know and somebody close to you, if it's not you. And I think that's that's important to keep track of. Now, on a little lighter side, if you can think of it, if you can ever imagine that there is a lighter side to a worldwide pandemic that has crippled the world, uh, it, it's this. And that's there, there's new findings that show that if you have had COVID and you've recovered, that in men it can re, it can lead to prolonged erectile dysfunction. And I was thinking about this, and it's like it's this weird socially induced form of evolution in a way, survival of the fittest. And because people getting infected right now are at high, high rates, like fast explosion rates, are in areas where they just think this is a hoax. So in a way, we kind of have this situation where the virus, working with social constructs here, is 
working towards a Darwinian solution to the problem because the people who aren't smart enough to figure out that this is a real virus are the ones who caught the virus and now they may have some difficulty reproducing. Uh, I was just thinking about that earlier today and it struck me as kind of humorous. Obviously, if somebody hears this that thinks uh, that the coronavirus is a hoax, they're not going to find it very humorous. Um, but it is kind of the, one of those weird situations where social pressures, propaganda, and a natural threat all combine in a way to demonstrate how natural selection can work. And this is an example of how natural selection can work. And even for people who don't want to believe in evolution, we know that the law of natural selection does work. We've observed it in real time in the world over the last hundred years very well. So we know the principle of natural selection works. And here we have another example of natural selection at work in all of its glory. Uh, so that's the only kind of bright side is just the weird anomaly that kind of comes out of all of this and that I, I don't want to say you can sit back and laugh at it, but it is nice to know that sometimes nature can help take care of issues related to the use, the indiscriminate use of propaganda. Um, that made me feel a little better because it's almost impossible to fight propaganda when it comes from a governmental level. It, you, you just can't get away from it. And uh, here we have a situation where, you know, there's some serious consequences to not paying attention to, the, to reality. And I think that should just be a simple truth that everybody would know, but it's not. And I, I should touch back on that because the problem is some of these people live in different realities. And I don't want to go on a rant on social media, uh, its effects, but we do have to have sympathy for the people who are in the center of these massive outbreaks because they are potentially living in a different reality because of the media that they consume. So the lightheartedness aside, it, it, it's really serious that we become divided in this way where we each see this different reality. And one way to combat that, like I try to watch all the different news networks, at least some blurb of them, you know, MSNBC, uh, Fox News, CNN. I even every once in a while, I'll watch One America Network, OEN, just to see what the craziest current conspiracy theory is. So I try to see all of it so that I can form a picture of what's going on in the world, like the reality that we're in. And also, believe it or not, medical or scientific journals also help with a lot of this because they analyze a lot of these effects that we're seeing social effects so you can also temper all of this data with that and you get a pretty good picture of reality and what's going on and different motivations and how money is flowing and that's really the only way to combat 
these little pocket worlds that social media companies have created for each of us is to, you know, have a very eclectic diet of news and information. And don't just instantly watch something from, say, Fox News if you are, if you normally watch CNN and be like, oh, well, that's just stupid. It's from Fox. And don't watch CNN if you're a fan of CNN. Don't just watch CNN and say, oh, well, everything they said must be true. You know, because that's just not where the truth is. And I, I'll be honest, it usually does, the truth lies closer to media sources like CNN, MSNBC, but it, it lies even closer with foreign news sources. Like The Guardian out of the UK is a great place to get information. Um, they're usually a little bit removed from the US politics and situations, so they paint a back-and-forth picture of what's really going on in the U.S., uh, which I find interesting and helpful. So that's all I have to say about this is just a little bit. I, I really, the point of this short podcast was to really break down this vaccine information because I feel like through ignorance, most media outlets are not giving an accurate picture of what's going on. And you can't necessarily expect them to. I mean, you know, these news hosts are not scientists. They have absolutely no idea of how science works, and they have absolutely no idea of how to assess the statistics in a lot of these situations, let alone understanding how models are built, understanding the results of models. They basically, somebody wrote the piece for them, they made some pretty graphs, and they're just reading that. So nobody in the entire chain has any idea of how this should be analyzed, which again, super unfortunate. So that's why I just wanted to get on here, explain how the vaccines are working, explain the different types of vaccines, what we can expect, and the risks that still lie ahead. I'm not saying these vaccines are dangerous. What I'm saying, and they are unlikely to be dangerous in and of themselves because so many people were inoculated. You know, we probably have somewhere around 100,000 people total of all the vaccines were inoculated and they didn't see any side effects from the vaccine itself. Unfortunately, that leaves a huge gray area of what these vaccines mean when they're unleashed in a society that is in the middle of a massive outbreak of the virus. And we just don't know. Um, I'm hoping for great things, but, you know, I'm pragmatic. I'm a realist. I know that there's still a lot of knowledge territory that needs to be traversed before we can say anything concrete about these vaccines. And I just wanted to extend that to everybody who has chosen to support me and listen to me so that you could assess these things for yourself as they move along and not get too lax because the media makes it sound super exciting, but also not to be too scared because there are a lot of conspiracy theories around the vaccines as well. And the truth, as always, is in the middle. And you just have to dig really hard for it. And 
And still, even digging as much as I possibly could, I nobody nobody except for the companies have access to their data or the analysis of their data. So there's still a blind spot there. We don't we don't know. And that's where I can leave it. Like we don't know. I'm not going to speculate on what's going to happen with these vaccines because we don't know. There's just not a bit enough information to say. And so I'm just approaching it pragmatically. And I hope everybody can do the same, keep their wits about them, and don't let your emotional dials get turned too far in either direction right now because it's unwarranted. All right, that's it. I hope everybody found some value in this short podcast. Like I said, super short. I just want to explain these things and really give you guys all the information that's possibly available so that you could make your own decisions and hopefully not throw yourself into some sort of emotional spiral in one direction or the other. All right, uh, that's it. I'll have a longer, we'll be releasing another consultation call later in the week. It's another two-parter, a lot of great information. I've I've been spectacularly happy with the clients that have been coming because they've all had really unique situations. So it's been a lot of fun for me to, in one sense, test how much I really do understand my own framework because, you know, I if it's as good as I say, I should be able to answer any question almost immediately by appealing to knowing how that works. And so far it's been great. Like people have had just, you know, all all over the place in a lot of these things. And it all was fairly easy for me to work through. And I really am glad that I've been able to help help everybody so far. It, it's been honestly an honor to have that support and to also give back something directly to help them achieve whatever goals they want to achieve. And I can't wait to give that to all of you in on scale very soon. All right. Enjoy, good luck, and stay safe.